From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Thursday, November 15th. I'm Aaron Schachter. The violence escalates between Israel and Palestinian militants in Gaza. There were new casualties on both sides today. This observer says Israel could be facing a nightmare scenario. The Israelis could be looking at a situation in which their relations are deteriorating with Egypt, two fronts in Gaza and in the north from Hezbollah, and the crumbling of its relationship with Jordan. We'll have the latest, and later Uruguay's president and his unusually modest lifestyle. PRI's The World is brought to you by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting patient-serving groups like the International Diabetes Federation, who help empower individuals with diabetes to live life to the fullest. Learn more about the International Diabetes Federation and others who are taking on this disease at Medtronic.com. And by PBS, presenting The Dust Bowl, a new film from director Ken Burns. Starts Sunday at 8, 7 central on PBS. I'm Aaron Schachter. This is The World. Israel and Palestinian militants in Gaza traded fire again today with casualties on both sides. Three Israelis died when a rocket hit a residential area. Other rockets reached deep into Israel, setting off air raid sirens in Tel Aviv for the first time since 1991 during the first Gulf War. We'll hear from the Israeli side in just a few minutes, but first to Gaza, where several Palestinians have been killed in Israeli attacks. The BBC's Paul Danahar is there. We caught up with him earlier as the sun was setting. Well, there is still a regular exchange of fire. We just had a very loud explosion uh, happening near our bureau. And literally about two minutes later, we heard the whooshing sound of something taking off. So it's sporadic at the moment, but uh, it's loud and it's big when it happens. Uh, And Gaza is basically preparing for another long night after quite a long day. Now, uh, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says Israel is doing everything in its power to avoid civilian casualties, but he says Hamas is firing from residential areas. Is that happening? Well, where my uh, bureau is, there are residential uh, accommodation around, and um, there are rockets going off. I think the thing about Gaza, to be honest with you, is it's an incredibly small place, and there's a lot of people in it. So pretty much everywhere in Gaza is a residential area, uh, unless you're going right up to the kind of no-man's land area between Israel and the kind of, and where Gaza kind of properly starts. So there certainly are uh, things being fired off from residential areas, but it's almost probably impossible to get entirely away from a residential area if you want to fire something off. So um, you know, I think the, the, the key factor here is to what extent is what's coming back in, to what extent can it be targeted? You know, you can... You can target people with drones in daylight, but if you were firing back in from the sea or you're firing in our uh, tank rounds or whatever, they are not accurate. So it really depends on what's being used to target people. Now, there was a a tragic incident that we know of with one of our colleagues in Gaza. Can can you tell us what happened there? Yeah, this is our colleague Jihad, uh, his son. Uh, was uh, killed uh, last night when what we believe was a a, a shell uh, came in through the roof. You could see where it came in. It hit the wall 
and it basically exploded uh, and it caused a huge fire, which, um, which killed his young son. Uh, he survived in hospital for about, uh, for about an hour. He was 11 months old. His name was Omar. It also killed um, his sister-in-law and it's left his brother badly injured. Uh, his elder son, um, Ali, who's four, received some, some slight wounds to his head, but he's okay. But um, look, it's absolutely tragic for, for all of us, obviously. Um, we spoke to Jihad. I spoke to Jihad today. I went down to see him. And he said, look, this, there was no fighting going on. There was nobody from the resistance, which is the word that everybody in Gaza uses for, uh, for, for Hamas. Um, it was just civilians. And then uh, his, his, I mean, basically his wife and his eldest son um, just stepped outside the room when the shell came in. And because they were the other side of the wall, they survived. It was a matter of about six inches between life and death in his house last night. The BBC's Paul Danahar in Gaza. To get a different perspective, we spoke to a young resident of the Gaza neighborhood of Tel al-Hawa. Carmel Assad Shamalach is 17 and only moved to Gaza last year, having grown up in the UK. Firstly, it was very unexpected. Um, like, you just wake up to a huge bomb. The floors are always shaking. And the children, the children here, like my little cousins and brothers, they're so worried. They don't know what to do. We have to pretend every time there's a bomb, we have to pretend it's something normal. We have, we have to crap, pretend it's a firework, pretend everything's going fine when it's completely the opposite. They don't know, they really don't know what's going on. Are, are you able to go out to shops, or are your, your brothers and sisters and cousins able to go outside and play, or no, are you all stuck n- in no the house? One, no one's able to go out, because they know say, if they go anything can happen. No one knows who's next. And so everyone's starting to go. Everyone yesterday, they went shopping to buy a huge amount of supply of food just to keep it in their house for a month or two so that they don't have to leave their homes because they know it's not good for them. And if you look out the windows, all the streets, there's nothing. It's empty. Um, Do you get the impression that people there are angry at Hamas for bringing this into Gaza? Uh, I I know what you're saying, but I don't... uh, There's two different views. Some people may be angry at Hamas because they think they're putting their life, life to it. But my opinion is they like we shouldn't be angry at them because they're just defending our country. And like when they shoot their rockets, we can't just like just leave it like nothing happened because we just can't get more in. We can't keep getting more injured people, more killed people. We have to fight back. We have to do something back. We have to fight for our country. Gaza resident Carmel Assad Shamalach. The world's Matthew Bell was on the Israeli side of the border today, where, as we mentioned earlier, three people were killed during a morning rocket attack. The three Israelis died when a rocket slammed into their fourth-floor apartment. It happened in the town of Kiryat Malachi, about 25 miles north of the Gaza border. Several people were also injured, including at least one infant. Police spokesman Mickey Rosenfeld said authorities were expecting more rockets from Gaza today. Uh, The Israeli police have heightened security all around the southern uh, part of Israel as a result of the rockets that have been landing. In all the major cities in uh, the southern part of Israel have been hit, including Beersheva, Ashkelon, Ashdod, 
Giat Malachi just took a, a serious strike and unfortunately three Israelis killed here at the scene. As police, medics and reporters milled around the area, one woman from the neighborhood stood by with a look of disbelief on her face. I'm really sorry for her family. It's, uh, she lost uh, three uh, from uh, family. It's, uh, it's very sad. The woman's sister chimed in, saying it doesn't feel safe in Israel. Even if they moved north, she said, the rockets could still reach there. Over the course of the day, dozens of rockets flew into southern Israel, keeping Israel's Iron Dome anti-missile system busy. By dinnertime, the Israeli military said it had intercepted some 90 rockets. Still, authorities are telling the Israeli public to take shelter when the warning sirens go off. That's what happened when Israel's transportation minister showed up in Kiryat Malachi and started to give an impromptu news conference. The crowd scattered to take cover. In a basement shelter, I met a young bearded father named Michael. He was there with his wife and four frightened kids. I, I tried to explain them. Uh, it's uh, bombs and they know. Uh, he he's don't understand, of course, but uh, she and he, uh, they understand a little. Uh, they heard, they scared. Every time she cries some, sometimes. Back outside, Transportation Minister Yisrael Katz was asked if the Israeli army should launch a ground invasion of the Gaza Strip. The Israeli army is uh, uh, prepared to everything. And uh, I hope that we will not need to do it. But if it will not be stopped, we will do it. In the coastal city of Ashkelon, which borders the Gaza Strip, the streets were mostly empty this afternoon. From the balcony of the mayor's office, you could see rockets being blown up mid-flight. Ashkelon Mayor Benny Vaknin told me he doesn't want to see an all-out war in Gaza, but people here need peace and quiet. I don't want uh, any killed people in both sides. If they stop, we can stop. But they don't want to stop. They want uh, to continue to shut. Uh, what I hope, that if they want to stop, it should be true ceasefire. Not uh, after two weeks, they will shut again directly on the civilian people. So how will this round of violence end? That's a question I put to Deputy Foreign Minister Moshe Ya'alon. The end for this conflict is when the other side is convinced that the Jewish state is here forever. Our uh, role is to stop the fire by convincing them that there is no way to defeat us. But by early evening came reports of long-range rockets landing near Tel Aviv. It's the first time Israel's largest urban area has come under fire since the 1991 Gulf War. It probably means that an Israeli ground incursion into Gaza is more likely than it was this morning. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell. Stephen Cook is a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Stephen, the uh, dynamics of the region have shifted dramatically as a result of the Arab Revolution. What is your foremost concern about the escalation of violence between uh, Israel and Palestinians in Gaza? Well, my foremost concern is the durability of relations between Israel and Egypt, which has been a pillar of U.S. policy in the Middle East for the better part of the last three decades. Given the new government in Egypt and demands by the Egyptian public for accountability and accountability on the Palestinian issue, it's going to be very, very hard for the new Egyptian president, Mohamed Morsi, to contain public outrage and demands that 
his government do something qualitatively different from what his predecessor had done in terms of real help to the Palestinians in, in Gaza. That's going to be put a lot of pressure on Egypt-Israel relations and U.S.-Egypt relations. Now, as you say, Egypt is a big question mark, but there are lots of other wild cards in the region. Um, there's a concern that Hezbollah could start firing rockets into Israel from the north. The civil war in Syria is raging now. And, and just this week, protests began in Jordan over a rise in fuel costs. Where indeed, does this those, go from here? Indeed, those are all major concerns. I think Jordan is a country to watch right now. As you say, the demonstrations are the result of a spike in energy costs to Jordanians. But given the large concentration of Palestinians in Jordan, the situation in Gaza as it unfolds may have a dynamic effect on Jordan and these demonstrations. Remember, Jordan is besides Egypt on the Syria front. Syrian leader Bashar al-Assad released a statement condemning the Israeli violence in Gaza. I don't believe that anybody in the region took that very seriously. It's true that there has been some fire that has landed on Israeli territory and the Israelis have responded, but the Israelis have done everything possible to avoid getting themselves involved in Syria's civil war. There is also this very real concern, however, that Hezbollah in Lebanon will start firing on the Israelis. And in fact, the war in Lebanon in 2006 actually began as a result of violence in Gaza. So there is always this concern that a second front, a northern front, can be opened up against Israel. And of course, Hezbollah, since that conflict in the summer of 2006, has rearmed itself and certainly has the kind of weaponry that can hit Israel's major cities, including, obviously, the greater Tel Aviv area. So the Israelis could be looking at a situation in which their relations are deteriorating with Egypt, faced with the possibility of two fronts in Gaza and in the north from Hezbollah, and the crumbling of its relationship with Jordan. All around a nightmare scenario. That was Stephen Cook with the Council on Foreign Relations. You can get updates with the latest on the Gaza conflict. The world's Matthew Bell is tweeting what he's seeing and learning on the ground. Follow him at Matthew J. Bell. I've also got a blog today about the social media war between Israelis and Palestinians. That's at theworld.org. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, supporting patient-serving groups such as the International Diabetes Federation, who help empower individuals with diabetes to live life to the fullest. Learn more about the International Diabetes Federation and others who are taking on this disease at Medtronic.com. I'm Aaron Schachter. This is The World. He's been labeled the poorest president of any country, but Jose Mujica isn't bothered by that. Mujica is president of Uruguay in South America, and unlike many American politicians, maybe most, he's not loaded. He does make a decent salary as president, but each month the former leftist guerrilla gives away most of his presidential pay, and instead of living in the presidential palace, he lives with his wife on a modest farm on the outskirts of Uruguay's capital. That's the city we want you to name, by the way, for today's GeoQuiz. Mujica says he's always lived an austere life, and he likes it that way. We'll hear more about this president's unique lifestyle choice when we name Uruguay's capital in a few minutes. All right, before we answer our geo quiz, a note about a mystery more than 400 years in the making. 
It involves the death of Danish astronomer Tycho Brahe back in the year 1601. Before Brea died at the age of 54, he made observations which basically laid the groundwork for modern astronomy. Famed astronomer Johannes Kepler was a student of Brea, which made him a suspect in his teacher's death. You see, for the past four centuries, there's been speculation about how Brea died. The story goes that he fell ill with a bladder infection. Legend has it that the infection came about because he, well, refused to breach court etiquette during a royal reception and find a men's room. A ruptured bladder and 11 days later, Brea was dead. But not everyone bought that version of events. Some thought Kepler poisoned his teacher, a kind of jealous student scenario. Or maybe it was the Danish king at the time. Brea allegedly had an affair with the king's mother. Either way, Brea was supposedly poisoned with mercury. Previous studies of Brea's remains seem to confirm that, finding high levels of mercury in his beard. But a group of Danish historians and chemists say it's now debunked that theory. They petitioned to once again have Brea's body exhumed from its resting place in Prague. They conducted intensive tests and concluded that Brea wasn't killed by mercury. They claimed the 15th century astronomer had no more mercury in his beard than what a modern man might have. So what did kill him? Well, the tests are still ongoing, but the lesson remains. If you're stuck at a party and you gotta go, for God's sakes, go. Oh, one last intriguing detail. Brea wore a prosthetic nose. He had part of his own nose sliced off in a duel. It's always been supposed that Brea, who was a wealthy man, had a prosthesis made of precious metals. Not so, say the scientists. They tested some samples and found that the fake nose was equal parts copper and zinc. In other words, he had a brass nose. The world's poorest president is at the heart of our geo-quiz today. That's what they call Uruguay's president, José Mujica. He gives away 90% of his presidential pay each month and likes to live simple. BBC Mundo reporter Vladimir Hernández met President Mujica recently. And, uh, Vladimir, where did you meet him? I gather it wasn't in the uh, presidential palace. Well, no, exactly. He, After he was elected, President José Mujica decided to live in the place where he has lived most of his life, which is a small farm just outside Montevideo. The place is quite astonishing because it's only guarded by just two police officers at the end of a, a dirt road where you would never think this is a presidential house. It's a place where you can see tractors, crops, people who hang their clothes in, in between trees. This is as rural as it can get. Stray dogs. And, and also, one of the, the, the most astonishing facts, as soon as you get to the place, it is Mr. Mujica's closest companion who comes to greet you, which is Manuela, a three-legged dog, which either goes to presidential meetings with him. That's how close they are. <laughs> and Montevideo is the answer to our geo-quiz. What is the philosophy behind this simple living? Is it some kind of political statement? Well, before I met him, I thought this was maybe, you know, politicians try to do these kind of stunts sometimes to attract some attention on them. But it is actually, in a way, it's, as it is, it's true. Uruguay has an official residence, which is what you expect an official presidential residence would be, a big house with all the luxuries, services, people who attend to you if you're a president. But in, in this place, we, we, we were there, Mr. Mujica was washing the dishes himself. He was pouring the glasses for us. There are crops and a garden outside, which he tends as well. He thinks people should live within their means. 
you should live to live, if you if you get what I mean. Well, let's hear uh, what the president says about the virtue of being poor. We've got a clip from your interview. Here it is. Dicen que yo soy presidente pobre. No, yo no soy presidente pobre. Pobres son los que quieren más. When I posed the question to him of why are you being called the poorest president, he was almost offended, saying that I'm not a poor man. Poor are the people who have to live their lives almost working like slaves to sustain a big house, a luxurious car, expensive holidays, uh, expensive clothes. I'm not poor, he says. I live my life to have time for myself. Therefore, I do not overspend or seek to get extra income or have an expensive lifestyle, which then I would have to sustain with time. Yeah, it should be pointed out that he, he does okay as president. He makes about $12,000 a month. Yeah, but nonetheless, he donates 90% of that to charity. Is he an effective president in addition to being a colorful one? He's halfway through his term. Now, his popularity rates have fallen below 50% for the first time since he's been in power. Probably most of the challenges that he is facing right now is that he came into power with high popularity and, if you can say, a mandate to carry out a number of reforms and programs to cover the needs of the people and for the opposition in Uruguay, some of those needs are not being met and they think it's unacceptable for someone who has had a strong mandate not to deliver. Is he suggesting that all Uruguayans should be content being poor? Should they all adopt the lifestyle that he has? No, not at all. And that's one thing that he was keen to stress. He said, this is a choice that I have made and which is something I hope people respect me for. And also, he he insisted, Uruguay is a free country. I live freely as I want. I don't pretend people should live like that. But I do suggest that people think how they live and maybe they could follow what I'm doing. And also, he took this even beyond saying that... This is something that maybe world leaders are taking into account. He says that we live in a society which is dependent on a lot of consumerism, and maybe that's why there's economic crisis in several countries as Europe and in the U.S. as well and other places. So he thought, well, you know, world leaders might just pay attention and maybe introduce a bit more of austerity into their lives. Tell me, if you would, what your favorite part of meeting President Mujica was on his his ramshackle farm, as you put it. I think the moments of this interview, which really described and, and showed what was coming, he was dressed quite informally, you know, with a very run-down tracksuit and a jumper, which you would see probably only as a pyjama, maybe. And then at the end of the visit, he told us, well, no, you know, I have to go back to work. I'm a president, so I have to go to the office. Okay, uh, I'm going to change now. He's just put a jean jacket on and he went to office. <laughs> You know, that's the way he just lives. Well, at least he's interesting, right? Yes, indeed. <laughs> that's BBC Mundo reporter Vladimir Hernandez. Thanks for speaking with us. Thanks, Aaron. Coming up, China's new leaders are announced and political reformers are not very pleased. This is PRI. I'm Aaron Schachter. Ahead, girls adopted in China, coming of age in America. Jenna likes to say that we're white on the inside and Chinese on the outside. But I don't know. I don't really think that's true. I think it's kind of a mix. Like a scrambled egg. I don't like eggs. <laughs> 
ERI's The World is brought to you by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting patient-serving groups like the International Diabetes Federation, who help empower individuals with diabetes to live life to the fullest. Learn more about the International Diabetes Federation and others who are taking on this disease at Medtronic.com. And by PBS, presenting The Dust Bowl, a new film from director Ken Burns. Starts Sunday at 8, 7 central on PBS. I'm Aaron Schachter, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. Meet China's new Communist Party leaders. The new top seven marched out to greet the press today in the Great Hall of the People. Xi Jinping is the chief leader, and he impressed many with his relaxed style, a far cry from the stiff, unsmiling Hu Jintao, the outgoing leader. Still, most of the new party leaders are older and more conservative, and that suggests the growing calls for political reform might go unanswered for now. The world's Mary Kay Magstad reports from Beijing. They walked in, all smiles in dark suits, and stood for photos, the new Politburo Standing Committee. It was clear at a glance that the most reform-minded candidates had lost out this round. In their place were older, more conservative party veterans. But there was one notable change, which became apparent as soon as General Secretary Xi Jinping stepped up to speak. Xi Jinping spoke like a regular human being, in plain language, with a relaxed demeanor, an occasional smile, eye contact. It was in stark contrast to the stiff formality of outgoing party leader Hu Jintao, and many Chinese online took note. Xi talked repeatedly about the party's responsibility to the people and the need for renewal. The party has come through a bruising scandal this year that took down another man who had hoped to stand here today, Bo Xilai, whose wife has been convicted of killing a British businessman. Bo himself has been stripped of party membership and accused of corruption and serious abuse of power. But the party recognizes that its problems with corruption go much deeper. Hu Jintao said as much at the beginning of the party congress last week. If we fail to handle this issue well, it could prove fatal to the party, even cause the collapse of the party and the fall of the state. It's been said before, but rarely so starkly. Then again, never before have so many senior party leaders and their families amassed so much wealth and attempted to move so much of it out of the country. Even government-run Chinese Central Television, or CCTV, ran an unusually candid discussion on the problem between author Robert Kuhn and CCTV host Zhou Yue. We always hear how important to eliminate corruption is. We always hear about the remarkable progress. But yet, every year, corruption gets more and more public attention. We have to ask why this happens. What do you think is the fundamental reason behind cases? It's a combination of several things. I think the fundamental thing is that when you have the concentration of power in a single-party system, that that is a natural breeding ground for corruption. Zhou Yue protested that democracies have corruption, too, but then agreed that China's judiciary has fallen down on the job. This is not your usual CCTV programming, but with the economy slowing down, the income gap growing, and the public growing ever more outspoken and critical online, calls for systemic reform have started to come from unexpected places. For instance, the editor of the Communist Party School's publication recently wrote that the outgoing leaders caused more problems than they solved by putting off overdue political reforms. 
Editor Deng Yuan followed up with another critical essay called Ten Grave Problems. He told me that while corruption is getting worse, it's just a symptom of a bigger problem. He says the party is losing its legitimacy. It's not just a matter of people getting rich, but how and how the system that claims to stand for the people is stacked to favor and protect a few over the many. Deng says we need political and economic reforms with the goal of democracy. Democracy, freedom, human rights, and rule of law are universal human values. If Western societies can operate based on those values, so can China. How much Xi Jinping agrees with that is hard to know. He has risen through the party ranks by being a team player who keeps his cards close to his chest. But his father, Xi Jiangshun, was a respected, reform-minded senior party official who was friendly with the Dalai Lama, and Xi Jinping himself spent seven years living in a cave and working as a farmer in the countryside during the Cultural Revolution. His words today suggest he's aware of at least some of what ordinary Chinese people want. Our people love life and yearn for better education, stable jobs. More satisfactory income, greater social security, improved medical and health care, more comfortable living conditions, and a more beautiful environment. And maybe a little more dignity, a fairer system, and an ability to freely criticize when things go wrong without fear of punishment. Given the makeup of the party's new top body, they may have to wait a little longer for that. For the world, I'm Mary Kay Magstad in Beijing. About 80,000 girls from China have been adopted by American families in the past quarter century. As these girls come of age, they wrestle with all kinds of questions about who they are and where they come from. A new documentary called Somewhere Between captures the emotional journeys of four of these girls. The world's Jeb Sharp caught up with three of them and the filmmaker at a recent screening in Boston. The whole thing started when film producer Linda Goldstein Knowlton adopted her own baby girl from China in 2006. She realized she wanted to make a film that answered her own questions about what her daughter Ruby's life would be like in the years ahead. Knowing that her life would be so different from mine, I just had a lot of questions as a prospective neurotic mother. So I had this opportunity because there were thousands and thousands of young women who were already teenagers who were adopted from China, and I wanted to go find out about their perspective. The result is Goldstein Knowlton's deeply affecting film about four teenagers trying to figure out who they are. The title, Somewhere Between, speaks to the way they feel caught between worlds. Take Fong Li of Berkeley, California. She was given up for adoption at the age of five, but visits China often. Here she is in the film, age fifteen. Wrestling with her feelings. I guess I'm a child stuck between two countries. I don't think it makes me Chinese American. Doesn't definitely doesn't make me American. It doesn't make me absolutely Chinese. So I don't. I guess I'm kind of confused about my identity. She's not the only one. Jenna Cook of Newburyport, Massachusetts, and her sister Sarah are shown expressing similar sentiments. Jenna likes to say that we're white on the inside and Chinese on the outside, but I don't know. I don't really think that's true. I think it's kind of a mix, like a scrambled egg. I don't like eggs. <laughs>
At the heart of the film is the story of Haley Butler of Nashville, Tennessee, the youngest of the four girls and the one you see most transformed through the course of the film. She starts out wondering about her origins and ends up returning to China in search of her birth family. And against all the odds, she finds them on her first try. But Goldstein Knowlton wasn't there to witness it. None of us expected this to happen. You know, going into the decision knowing that Haley was going to search... I really weighed out whether we should go or not, and to be honest with you, I did not want to go and film her disappointment. So imagine my surprise to get the email in the subject line that says in all caps, open immediately, and the whole email said, I think I found my birth family, dot, 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 and you're not here. Luckily, Goldstein Knowlton had given each of the girls a video camera, so a friend was able to capture that initial meeting. And once the genetic ties were confirmed through DNA testing, Haley returned for a full reunion and celebration replete with village fireworks and a feast, this time with the film crew in tow. She was just 14 then. Now 17, Haley tells me she's deeply grateful. I have that captured on a wonderful camera and on the big screen forever. You know, when I have a family, I can show them what it was like when I found my parents and what it was like when I went back to the village where my family was from. Now that the film is out and she's had time to reflect on the whole thing, Haley is aware that the footage of that reunion has a powerful emotional effect on viewers. She worries her experience could be misleading to kids like her who might want to search themselves one day. For me, it was ridiculously easy, but I didn't want to give false hope to people that hadn't started to think about finding their family yet, and I didn't want them to see the film and say, oh, that girl, her search was so easy, mine's going to be just like that. And I, I really don't want that to happen, and I hope that everybody that's listening to this can take that to heart and know that my experience was very individual. And in fact, what comes through in the film is just how individual the stories are, how different each girl is from the next, and yet how much they share. Fong now realizes a lot of her own journey has been about growing comfortable with the unknown. People expect us to know. They expect us to have answers. And one thing this movie and meeting all these lovely young women and the the adoption community has helped me to realize is it's okay not to know. It's okay to say, I don't have the answer for you. Fong and the others come across as remarkably self-aware. It's tempting to wonder if being part of the film project has made them so. It has certainly given meaning to their stories. Listen to Jenna. When I think of this film, it's not really about us, the four of us. It's about these huge questions about what is family, what is kinship, what is identity, what is race, like these core, core questions. Audiences across the country seem to be responding to those questions, which is gratifying to Linda Goldstein Knowlton. It makes sense to her, too. We're a nation of immigrants, and so everybody in one way or another is somewhere between in so many different ways in their lives. And so the universal part of this story that these young women have given as a gift, it's exceeded my dreams. For the world, I'm Jeb Sharp. Somewhere Between opens tomorrow in Denver and Minneapolis. You can watch the trailer and find out about other screenings at theworld.org. $4.5 billion. That's what the British oil giant BP has agreed to pay today to settle federal criminal charges stemming from its massive 2010 oil disaster in the Gulf of Mexico. The world's environment editor Peter Thompson has been following this developing story, as well as the rest of the week's environmental news. Peter, this is a fairly dramatic development in this long-running story about the Gulf oil disaster. What do we know? 
Well, we know that uh, BP will plead guilty to a host of federal criminal charges related to that explosion and blowout at the Deepwater Horizon drilling rig in April of 2010. You probably remember that 11 people were killed in that explosion and that, of course, oil gushed into the Gulf of Mexico for almost three months. A lot of folks have called it the country's worst ever environmental disaster and have brought an avalanche of lawsuits and criminal charges. So today, BP has agreed, as you said, to pay $4.5 billion. It's being called a record settlement. It includes $1.3 billion in criminal fines, with the rest going to government agencies like the Securities and Exchange Commission. The charges that BP is pleading guilty to include 11 felony counts of misconduct or neglect and two misdemeanors related to environmental laws. Okay, now, Peter, aside from the 11 deaths in this case, no one has really been able to quantify uh, the environmental damage, but there have been a lot of comparisons to the Exxon Valdez oil spill in Alaska in 1989. Uh, How do the penalties BP will be paying stack up against what Exxon ultimately paid? It looks like it's going to be a lot more in this case. Exxon paid a billion-dollar criminal fine for that disaster, with inflation that works out to about $1.8 billion today. So in that straight-up comparison, it looks like BP will end up paying more than twice the fine that Exxon paid. Okay, so we have a settlement. Will that actually settle things? Well, no, actually not at all. The settlement will still have to be approved by a federal judge, but even that wouldn't be the end of the story. For one thing, it looks like two BP employees will face manslaughter charges over the deaths in the disaster, and there are also tens of thousands of civil suits that the company admits will likely cost it many billions of dollars more. It also faces possible fines under the Clean Water Act that could run in the neighborhood of 20 billion dollars. Okay, we're talking about big money, big story, but not the only environmental news this week. Well, no, of course not. And I mean, since Sandy in the election, a lot of folks have been watching to see whether President Obama would stake out a more aggressive position on climate change. Well, he finally spoke about it at some length at his White House press conference yesterday, Aaron. And unlike his forceful comments on some other topics, he's still playing this very close to the vest. On the one hand, he's clearly been paying very close attention to some of the science, and he made it clear that he was going to be personally involved in the search for ways to make political and technological progress. So that's a big change for him, but he also made clear that he wasn't going to do anything that would harm the economy or didn't have broad public support. Is there any way to do that, really? Well, any policies that would make a really big difference on carbon emissions would have a huge impact on the economy and generate huge blowback. So it's really hard to see how he could satisfy those criteria while also breaking this political stalemate we're in. Okay, Peter, at least the president is talking about climate change, which hasn't happened for quite a while. Do you think the president gets what many scientists are saying is the gravity of the climate challenge, or is it just another issue for him? Well, politically, it is an incredibly difficult issue. And a president has to balance a huge number of priorities, of course, even a president who doesn't have to run for re-election. But frankly, I still don't think he quite gets what scientists are saying is the urgency of the problem. And it's interesting because there was a strong message about that urgency this week in something else that made a lot of news for other reasons. And that was the International Energy Agency's new World Energy Report. The headline for most folks in that was that based on current trends, the U.S. is likely to overtake Saudi Arabia as the world's biggest oil producer within just a few years. And that would be a huge development. But for me, the much bigger news in the same report was that based on those same trends, the world is going to blow right past the international target for carbon dioxide, for limiting warming to two degrees Celsius. So the world's leading international energy agency says we're on a totally unsustainable energy path 
And I think that even after Sandy and the president's reelection, the president and the country as a whole still haven't really gotten that message. The world's environment editor, Peter Thompson. We have video of President Obama's comments on climate change at yesterday's press conference at theworld.org. Peter, thanks. Thanks, Aaron. Coming up, indie rock originating in Sudan. Say that 10 times fast. This is PRI. I'm Aaron Schachter. This is The World. It's been a decade since the end of a brutal civil war in Sierra Leone. The West African country has made a lot of progress since then. It's a safer place with better roads and lots of foreign investment. And this weekend, Sierra Leonean voters go to the polls for their third election since the war ended. But there's one area where progress has been slow in Sierra Leone. That's the inclusion of women in the country's politics. As Bonnie Allen reports from Freetown, female candidates there face serious barriers. Thank you, thank you. May everybody sit down, please. Inside a small school in Freetown, Rosaline Smith stands to deliver her campaign speech. There's no electricity, and the room is dark. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Then the battery-operated microphone cuts out. Yet the 39-year-old mother of two perseveres. As a woman running for parliament in Sierra Leone, she has bigger challenges. Contesting election in Africa... Especially in Sierra Leone, where women are marginalized. Women have been in the back, they've been in the kitchen for so long. Contesting with men, strong men, it was not an easy battle. Smith's voice is hoarse from shouting over air horns and vuvuzelas. She doesn't hide the fact that she's more privileged than most Sierra Leonean women. She spent eight years living overseas. She went to college. Her husband is a successful businessman who's willing to fund her campaign. All that gives her the confidence to ignore intimidation. They said, oh, do you think this whore is going to lead us? We're not going to let that happen. Things like that, but I don't let things like that bother me. Just intimidation, just to make you feel bad, start crying or feel like, oh, this is wearing me down. They want to tear me apart. They want to destroy my home. I'm going to sit back. No. Smith is one of just 38 women who are running for parliament in Sierra Leone's election. Compare that to 500 and some men. More women were interested, but their political parties rejected them. The numbers dropped so bad. So we still have a serious challenge of male civilianism in this country. We still have to work hard as women. The male dominance is so much everywhere in our political parties. I felt so much disappointed. That's Mary Jallo, a member of parliament for the ruling party. She relaxes on a plush red couch inside the country's parliament building. Jallo was elected in 2007, but was rejected by her party this time around. She's frank about women's lack of readiness to run in post-war Sierra Leone. Most are illiterate and too poor to mount expensive political campaigns. Women's groups in Sierra Leone have pressed for years to get a 30% quota for women in elected and appointed positions, but that hasn't happened. And the two main political parties failed to keep their promise to run more women. At a rally in the eastern province, the main opposition leader blows kisses out of the window of a shiny black SUV. Julius Matabio selected a female running mate for vice president, but his party is only running 10 women for parliamentary seats. 
Bio says fronting more women would be political suicide. For elective office, it, it is extremely difficult. But why not have pushed to get more women the party symbol? Obviously, you're powerful within the party. One could have thought you could have pushed that forward. I will only be able to just secure the interest of women if I'm in power. If uh, we give a, a symbol to a woman, she's going to lose, and I'm going to lose eventually, then we all lose. The women lose, and I get to lose too. Yet Rosaline Smith stands a good chance of winning, mostly due to the ruling party's popularity. If elected, she knows she'll be one of only a few women in government, and she'll likely face more discrimination once inside the House of Parliament. For the world, Bonnie Allen, Freetown, Sierra Leone. Finally, today we hear from a young man who was born on the other side of Africa, in Sudan. But 28-year-old Ahmed Galab grew up here in the U.S. He's a musician who gained some notoriety in the indie rock circuit. Now a solo project is drawing him back to his African roots, as Marissa Neff reports. Galab was just five years old when his father, a Sudanese politician, moved the family to the U.S. It was 1989, and the stay was meant to be temporary. We were living in Boston at the time while he was studying at Boston University. And as we were studying, there was a, a coup that overthrew the government that he was aff- affiliated with. So he lost his job, and a bunch of his friends started disappearing and stuff. So we seeked for asylum here, and we got it. And... It was a really intense experience where, I mean, as a a kid, I really didn't know what was going on. But now that I'm a little bit older, I realize it was kind of a crazy year. The coup was led by Omar al-Bashir. He seized power and his regime still holds the reins in Sudan. In the meantime, the uprooted Galab family spent several years in Utah before settling in Ohio. Ahmed's parents made sure to send him and his sisters back as often as possible, though his father remained in political exile until 2004. I'd spend a lot of my summers as a kid in Sudan. All of my family still lives there, and it was very, very important for my parents that me and my sisters maintained our our culture as Sudanese people, our identity as Sudanese people. Ahmed's parents also kept their culture alive by playing records by Sudanese artists like Mohamed Wardi and Shar Habil. But they didn't limit their listening to musicians from home. You can't touch this. My dad's first CD was MC Hammer's Please Hammer Don't Hurt Him. You can't touch this. Influenced by the music he heard at home, Ahmed started gigging while still in grade school. Some of his Provo, Utah classmates recruited him to play in a band called Rigid Prawn. In his early 20s, he formed the project Syncane, but he was also in demand as a touring musician for some popular indie bands like Of Montreal, Caribou, and Yesayer. So his solo project took a back seat. A few years ago, Ahmed stopped touring to focus on Syncane, developing its synth-heavy Afro-electro sound. And as he wrote the songs that would eventually form his new album, Mars, he says he realized just how much his music is inspired by his Sudanese roots. 
whenever I sit down to write a song and I play guitar, I always fall to a pentatonic scale. The Sudanese music is all based off a of pentatonic scale, so whenever I'm writing kind of lead lines or melodies, well, that sounds the most natural to me. I really like to write polyrhythmic music, and that's a very African thing as well. The more I, the more I play, the more I write, the more I realize that it's derived from Sudanese music. For the world, I'm Marissa Neff. You can see one of Ahmed Galab's videos at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, I'm Aaron Schachter. We're back tomorrow. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes that a great nation deserves great art. The Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org. And by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can. PRI Public Radio International.